Oh, Dan, hi, how are you doing? Richmond, it's good to good to see you, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Very well. Well, it's it's been a little while, and, and last time we chatted, you, you well, you kindly invited me to your show, um, yep. and and I sort of bared myself to you. So I thought we'd we'd swap it around. Yeah, no, looking looking forward to <laughs> to chatting. As I as I said to you off air, I'm I've got a bit of a non-COVID cough at the moment, so uh, um, I will I will do my best to to make my way through the conversation without uh, too much coughing and spluttering, which will probably put your audience off. But I'll I'll, I'll do my best here. That's a bit like saying don't think of elephants. Ah, ironic processing theory. Indeed. Indeed. There you go. Straight on the psychology jargon. Yes. Ironic processing theory. Don't think don't and all that. Yeah, no, you, you, you're probably right. You're probably right. I, I, but I, I suppose I'm just being polite. That's all. But also, there's, there's an interesting thing, isn't there, that, that if you cough, you feel obliged to, to say it's COVID or non-COVID. Well, yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon as well, isn't it? I, I did. Uh, I have been saying for the last three weeks. So I'm sort of, I think, at the back end of this this cough, and it's just been. Um, it just has literally been a cough. But the amount of times, whether it's on my own podcast or whether it's me being on somebody else's show or or doing some clubhouse stuff that I've been doing, you know, the latest app, uh, every single week I'm sort of going, well, I've got a cough, but it's a non-COVID cough. <laughs> um, you know, even talking with clients, it's like, but it's, don't worry, it's not COVID, it's not COVID. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, as you say, it's kind of, <laughs> you, you feel obliged to mention it. Yeah. So we got these whole, whole sort of list of new behaviours. And I was uh, I was chatting to Andy Lane um, last week and, and he, we were talking about running um, and he was saying that, that sometimes when running down a narrow kind of path where you've got to pass each other, um, he might shout out, I'm vaccinated um, as, a, as a kind of a, a warning. It's a bit like the old driving around country lanes and hooting your horn, isn't it? Well, I tell you what, I, I, I think my big thing is that um, I, if I was to take up middle-aged football or, you know, some sport where I have to move around quite a bit, my mobility would be so much better now than it was a year ago because I, I go for a run. I go for a run most days, although last few weeks with this cough, I, I, I made the choice to, to, to hold back a little bit, but um I, rightly or wrongly, um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm quite conscientious when it comes to keeping distance, and I say that because I don't think everybody is, with respect. I think some people are better at, bet, have been better at it, and more conscientious than others. But I'm, I'm, I'm quite that inclined to be quite conscientious about it, and and running most days as I do, just my mobility now because I've just been swerving around. <laughs> the streets of Cheltenham just trying to avoid people even on the quiet lanes because there's always some people out out walking and so yeah just 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 no joke I'm my, my, my swerving ability now is is fantastic so if I was to play like a game of football my capacity to get around the pitch and to to move and to be get from point a to point b a lot quicker than i perhaps could have done a year ago is yeah so it's it, it's interesting it's interesting <laughs> So you're keeping yourself fit, which is uh, which is good to good to hear. Um, how, how have things changed the way that you work over this last um, year? Or so? Well, I, I, I tell you, what, I have kept myself fit, and I. I uh, but just before I addressed the work piece, I actually. Um, uh, my wife bought me uh, a Withings scale for Christmas, um, which keeps all your data, and has demonstrated to me. I mean, I, I've always had a Fitbit. And um, 
I, I um, it's just demonstrated to me how I personally love data to keep track. I mean, I'm not a particularly fantastic numbers guy. I'm not that naturally great at mathematics, but I find looking at the data really helps me. Uh, I would imagine it helps most people. And uh, I brought down my, my uh, percentage of fat. My body composition has changed quite a bit. Um, over the last, certainly over the last six months, but over the last year. Um, and I put my, my weight down and my, my percentage of fat down quite a bit. And it's just due to both a combination of Fitbit and the Withing scale that's really helped me. But I, that's a bit of an aside, but uh, I think it's, it's an interesting phenomenon as a psychologist, behavior change and how one um, manages themselves. And I felt data really helped me. But in terms of work, um, Look, as a sports psychologist, um, as you'd probably appreciate, uh, you know, we've always had the capacity to do a lot of work via Zoom anyway, um, or, or some kind of online platform. And I've, I've always done that. I, I do quite a bit of work in the States. I, I have done for a number of years. I have an online academy, a soccer academy that I, I kind of sell in. Um, and most of the clients there are, are in America. Um, I consult globally. So I've utilized those platforms for quite some time as a practitioner. I, I, when lockdown happened last March, I couldn't get, I had one big consultancy where I was doing a couple of days a week and I couldn't get back on site um, there. So that fell by the wayside. Um, and, and so most of my consultancy has been uh, via this kind of platform, this kind of medium over the past year, um, give or take the odd month where we could get out and consult. I could get out on the golf course. I could get to somebody's house or their club or whatever. But obviously, you know, with various lockdown measures, that's come in and out. Yeah. So um, I think, look, what I've learned, I suppose, is if I wanted to have a business that functioned purely remotely, I could do that. I think, you know, I, I, I really could. So it's certainly an option, uh, whether for the foreseeable future or, or into the distant future, it's certainly an option. Um, and I, I just, I just think more and more people now have, have, you know, I'm probably telling you things and, and the audience things that they'll, they'll know already and they'll appreciate, but it's just demonstrated that, you know, how we can utilize technology, how can we can utilize these platforms and, um, how we can, how, how we can work remotely. So it's, it's been a it's sort of a, a, a tragic, but also a fascinating period of time in terms of human behavior and how we adjust and, 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 and how we attenuate to various situations and how the landscape can change so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how have you found your, I mean, I'm going to sort of make the assumption that, that the, the majority of your work is, is football. You, you're known for football. Is that, would that be fair to start with that? Yeah, I suppose. <coughs> I suppose over the last fifteen years um, of being a, a, a registered sports psych, um, golf and football would be the predominant sports. Um, obviously, my background is professional golf, so that's a landscape I know very well. And I was lead psych for England golf for a few years. So, um, but uh, somewhat strangely, yeah, football has been very much the dominant. Uh, factor uh, dominant sport uh, in my life but I work with sports people across sports so but yes you're right Richmond for argument's sake you're correct okay okay good 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 so so looking at that that population then how how do you feel they've responded players have responded to this this situation 
I just think there's been so many individual differences, you know, in what I've experienced. And obviously mine is a fairly uh, small cross-section of, of, of the footballing community globally. Um, I, I think some players have, uh, whether naturally or, you know, through their own personality characteristics or temperament, um, some players have, um, or, or whether learned skills, um, some players have uh, adjusted quite quickly. Um, I, I found during the height of lockdown, um, and obviously we're really only just coming out of, of, of things now, but in the height of lockdown, uh, when football stopped, essentially, there was just a real mix. And as I say, I just think individual differences are prevalent here. Um, I think some found it simple uh, or easy and, and others are much more difficult. You know, it's uh, we get into our habits. We have our habits. We have our routines. And, you know, what I find certainly at the professional level where players um, wake up, uh, get in their car, drive to the training ground, you know, they can grab breakfast there and then they're into physio team meetings mass massage whatever it might be you know their day is essentially mapped out for them and if anything i found historically that players where they struggle a little bit mentally they struggle they can struggle in a lot of places mentally but certainly where they can struggle from a, a time perspective and a things to do perspective has always been in the afternoon after training and obviously at the very, very highest level where training grounds are, you know, like spaceships and, and there's rooms where they can play PlayStation and do all kinds of, of things and bring their family in that, that, you know, those are there for them and, and, and that helps them to stay at the training ground all day long. Um, but for the vast majority they, they leave the training ground early afternoon, they go home and they're at a bit of a loss as to what to do. <coughs> and I suppose, that's really where they were at the height of the lockdown is, well, okay, well, I wake up and what do I do now? And there was obviously a, an effort by just about all clubs to interact with players, but that isn't necessarily a like-for-like -like substitute. And so I think all players were challenged. Uh, and, and I suppose this is where we can lean on the personality characteristic of, or trait even of, of conscientiousness. You know, when you're given your diary, essentially, you kind of just do it okay mm. you can kind of be a passive recipient of the diary that you've been given of the scheduling that you've been given and so I did find myself working with some clients um, helping them to try to diarize their week and really turn up the volume of their conscientiousness if you like um, their orderliness their dutifulness um, because they really had to um take ownership of that, um, take charge of that, engage in effortful control from that perspective, which is something they weren't necessarily used to doing. And, and that's, that's almost cliche to say it in, in that in football, in professional football is again, this notion of that their scheduling is given to them. So they just go with that. And when they come away from football in that respect, it's, okay what do I do now how do I go about this you know so yeah um sorry a bit, bit of a waffle there but that was that was an example that was an yeah. example of the kind of thing I mean, obviously a lot of them missed uh, uh being with teammates just as uh, you know everybody in the workplace who works with others missed that interaction um they missed playing football 
you know they missed missed doing that every day and and where the volume of anxiety was turned up perhaps was um the, the, i suppose the stress of retaining form what will i be like when i come back where will my game be um for some who were in precarious contractual positions um uh, for those who aren't or weren't necessarily a shoe-in for the first team or on the 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 borders of you know whatever the landscape so often in professional sport as you know the situation is precarious for the vast majority of people and so that 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 notion of precariousness is kind of the volume is turned up and and so that's where the really the the origins of anxiety lay throughout that period I, I felt so there was a kind of a raft of conversations that you're having with every single individual having a different challenge yeah and I guess that that combination of of vulnerability and then having time to ponder on it could have been a a tricky mix for a lot a lot of people yeah, yeah ab- ab- absolutely uh, and that's really where you're you're striving to help somebody schedule their day with tasks to accomplish, tasks to do, to engage in what we would call approach behavior. This is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do between this time and this time. And again, some players found that pretty, pretty, pretty easy. You know, they, they can do that or they did it off their own back. Um, for others, it's just something that, um, a skill that uh, it afforded them the opportunity to develop that skill mm. essentially yeah. um i felt so yeah interesting interesting time yeah so so you were able to then kind of work on on an area where some perhaps struggled as you said for maybe for years and years and years they've been given you know a schedule be like you know when we're at school isn't it we're just given this timetable and you know you've got to be there 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 whatever time and then suddenly there isn't one and, and you've got to kind of do it yourself. And I, I guess it gives you the chance to explore your own motivation, um, how motivated you are um, and, and other things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. There were, there were some, like if I reflect back, definitely some conversations around, you know, purpose and values, um, conversation around intrinsic drivers, uh, and intrinsic rewards and uh, uh, again as a broad brush statement that's could be construed as an opportunity in a profession that tends to be extrinsically driven and extrinsically rewarded yeah again I, I'm, I'm conscious when I say that well is that a certain subsection that's probably elite sport or professional sport tends towards that um, the, 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 the external drivers, the extrinsic rewards is, is the accurate term for it, um, rather than the internal drivers and the intrinsic rewards. So there definitely, if I reflect back, there were some, there were some conversations around that. I mean, I, I, I think what I've, what I've personally found, Richmond, is there's a, there's, I've had quite a few uh, conversations on various podcasts etc where people have said oh lockdown you know you're a sports psychologist this must have been your busiest period and maybe that it was for some sports psychs I don't necessarily think it became busier for me 
Um, you know, it's it, from a well-being and welfare perspective. I think well-being and welfare and mental health is always there. It's it's always bubbling away. Um, I appreciate the landscape changed, uh, and it definitely changed for. Uh, uh, Perhaps there were more conversations around that. There was just there was just differences. You were doing diet, you were diarising, you're helping people diarise, and as you say, kind of helping them perhaps manage the kind of anxieties and the vulnerabilities around that. Perhaps sometimes it afforded you the opportunity to have those conversations around motivation. Perhaps it afforded you to have conversations around, okay, so what are you going to engage in? Well, let's talk about mental skills here. Let's give you some books to go away and read, and we can we can have a conversation around that. Again, that that absolutely happened. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily reflect back on the past fifteen months and go. Um, things were well were things I suppose they were enormously different in a way but you're still kind of having similar conversations if that makes sense yeah yeah I I I think I I think I'm getting what you're you're saying there in as much as you know there has been and I don't want to play down the pandemic of course because it's been it's been tragic and so difficult for so many people in different ways um but but when, when things improve and as things improve and they seem to be, and hopefully we can keep going down that route, there's still going to be stuff that we've got to deal with that's hard in life. There's still going to be challenges. There's still going to be anxieties about something else. Um, and so, you know, these, these skills and practices that you're talking about and you've been working with the players around what happened, that, that landscape, you know, you would hope then can take forward into whatever else comes up, ultimately to maintain performance. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I definitely, it's interesting, you know, certainly in the last few months, there's definitely been some conversations around players, people kind of saying, well, I think lockdowns impacted me from a negative perspective. You know, I, I think I might be a bit anxious as a consequence, but I'm not 100% sure which I think is an interesting thing to say. I think there's a bit of uncertainty as to how lockdown has impacted them. And I, I suppose I might be one of those, I might put myself in that kind of category. I mean, I'm, so I, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't think the landscape is that clear for many people at the moment. Uh, and, and again, I'm going to come back to as a sports psychologist or as a psychologist, you can be incredibly dull by saying, well, look, it's just all on an individual level. And it really, really is. And it really does vary depending on how someone perceives the situation, depending on the skills and the competencies they bring to the table, depending on how they conducted their life previously, depending on what kind of social support they had, depending on the culture they grew up in, depending on the kind of personality they have. It's so individual. But there's definitely people, and as I say, I might put myself in this landscape, in this category, which who are saying, well, I think I've been affected by this. I, I, there's definitely some negatives there. There might be some positives, but there's definitely some negatives. I'm just not quite sure how. Does that make sense? And I, I kind of feel like I'm one of those people. It's like it's kind of afforded me the opportunity to look at my business and go, hmm, you know what? If I wanted to take up one of these uh, work visas in Barbados that you can do for a year these days and consult uh, digital, digitally, I think they're called digital nomads. It's like, I could probably do that, actually, because I don't necessarily have to be uh, on site. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting landscape. 
at the same time, you know, we've been at home a lot and there's definitely something low lying, low level sort of anxiety that is there that I'm kind of perhaps finding it hard to articulate to myself what that looks like. And maybe that might just surface or materialize in the next couple of years. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I can. Yeah, I get the sense of that. It's almost like things still for me feel a little bit on pause and, yep. and that's I mean similar to you I was doing Zoom before and so I sort of slipped into this, this Zoom consultations quite easily um, and it kind of feels there's a little little voice that keeps saying yeah that's fine for now but it's not always going to be be like this and then another voice saying well it could be like this if you wanted to just as you were saying there we could could go off to Barbados and, and work from a from a beach and, and do you know most of the work that, that I do as, as you could as well. Um, so it, it does chuck up these thoughts, I suppose, that, that you wouldn't otherwise have been having. Yeah. 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 I, I just think, it's, you know, we're complex, aren't we as human beings and we work on so many different levels and, and, and things change from day to day and week to week and month to month. And, you know, I, I, I think when, for me, uh, I'm, I'm, quite introverted um i enjoy my own company I, I i don't get particularly uh amped up by social cues um uh, you know I, I i i'm quite content but don't necessarily experience an overwhelm of positive emotion so i, I definitely think there's periods during lockdown where the notion of being indoors um I, I've been perfectly fine with that and occasionally enjoyed that idea. Oh, you know, we're hunkering down, we can mm. chill out and I can, I can write, I can, I can read, I can, you know, we've got Netflix these days, we've got prime, <laughs> whatever it might be. That's fine by me. Um, I think that, yeah. Whereas I think, you know, when lockdown started, I was literally that week, I was due to go to Sacramento to deliver, um, to 50 coaches in Northern California, uh, a, a football soccer, as they call it, um, workshop. Um, and then I was due to go to fly to St. Louis um, a couple of months after that and uh, at various things in, in Italy and, and Germany. <laughs> that, so, you know, it, it's like, well, that disappeared. And, it, and again, I think that's where I come back to uh, that. Those kind of things are starting to appear again a little bit. I mean, I don't know if I'll, just been I've been invited to to Rome to spend a day there with um, a, a team and and um, uh, I, I just don't know how it's impacted me a lot of that to be honest and I don't know if 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 you know if it's impacted me from a, a personal sort of characteristic and anxious perspective uh, I don't know I don't know yeah. I don't I don't know at the moment and I think that that's okay you know and I think that that's the thing I think we're very quick rightly or wrongly to say well what's happening what's going on how are you what's you know how's this impacted how's this impacted society and I get why we want those answers I don't I think it's like a lot of things you just it it, 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 it it's almost like um let, let's try and apply this to sports you know it, it's like 15 years ago everybody thought Jose Mourinho was this, just the world's greatest coach. And this guy is never going to lose. And it's all brilliant. And now with the greatest of respect to him, certainly his stock is down a bit. It might come back up and he might go and win the champions league in Roma, 
I'm I, I'm saying this because I don't think you can necessarily judge someone's career. I mean, Jurgen Klopp might never win anything again. I think he probably will, but he might not. And so in a decade's time, 15, 20 years time, that's when we can look back and go, okay, how successful was he or how successful was she or what what is the indice of success if we were going to go a bit deeper? I'm saying this because I, at the moment, I don't know how the pandemic has affected me. I'm sure a lot of people don't know. I think in five years time, we'll look back and be able to judge a bit more clearly. And I think that that's okay. I think there is a fog of confusion right now that will unlift and there'll be films and there'll be documentaries <laughs> and there'll be dramas about it and there'll be series about it and, and, and all these kind of things. There'll be books about it. And then we can look back with a bit more clarity because the moment i think we're still very much engaged in it and i think it's hard to articulate quite how it's impacting us yeah yeah because we're sort of we're still in it aren't we it's a bit like you know trying to understand how the brain works using a brain you know we're almost too too close to see yeah um but interesting you sort of draw that analogy with with you know sporting success and and how you know these endless conversations are there about who's the best this who's the best that and comparison but so difficult to compare players anyway, because they've got completely different upbringings, different experiences. Some might have gone to private school and had loads of the advantages there. Others come from a different background. And there's just so many differences. But yet we know, well, how many goals have they scored? How many runs have they got? You know, what's, the, what's their best round? And, and, this, and, and as you say, to just zoom in on one moment in time, like the now, but I guess players do that to themselves as well. Kind of they get caught up in the minutiae of it as how successful am I? How, how would you help a player then sort of take a broader perspective on their career and how they're doing? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think <coughs> I think zooming in is a, is a very good way to put it. And I, I do think we need to help players zoom out often. Um, I think there's a, that's a skill in itself to, to, to zoom in on purpose, to zoom out on purpose. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a range of tools that one can utilize to be able to help you do that. Uh, uh, and I think intentionally, f- f- as an example, um, intentionally um, regularly holding an, an appreciative inquiry about your own game, about your own career. Um, you know, the season, the week, the month, um, by appreciative inquiry, I mean, you know, how am I going? What's, you know, what's good? What's working? What's successful? Um, you could bring in the work of, you know, the, the, the positive psychology literature here and, and talk about gratitude. You know, what am I, what am I grateful for? And I know people do that on a day by day basis these days, you know, part of, part of their bedtime routine after they've brushed their teeth is to write down three things that they're grateful for. I mean, that's, that really is getting into the minutiae of, of, um, um, managing one's emotion, um, and, and, and zooming in to be able to zoom out, I suppose an, an, an appreciative inquiry is more of a zoom out of, well, what's gone great this past week and what's gone great this past month and what's really working this season. Um, reflecting on, re- reflecting on positives, on strengths, on best games. Um, I just think is, is crucial. I, I put in my own podcast, I put to Ethan Cross, who's based at the University of Michigan, who's written a book, Chatter, 
um, that came out this year. He's a, an expert, if you like, a professor of the of conscious control, the conscious mind. I put to Lisa Feldman Barrett, the neuroscientist, uh, on my podcast. You know, um, is the brain does the brain orient towards the negative? Um, and without sort of saying yes, absolutely, it does because obviously they're reasonably cautious scientists. <laughs> um, they said, you know, we can pretty. I felt what they said was we could pretty strongly hypothesize that that seems to be the case, that as human beings, we do tend to, to, towards the, the negative, the threats, if you like. We scan for threats internally, externally, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, that old survival mechanism. And so if, if, if that's the case, I think for a lot of us, and there's going to be, again, coming back to individual differences, there will be people who probably have a positive positivity bias and an optimism bias. I think it's Tally Sherot or Sherot who, who's written a book about uh, the optimism bias, which I think is an interesting counterpoint to, to, to what I'm about to say. Um, but um, I think we can orient towards threats. We can orient towards the negative and especially in sport where it's always about the deficit, what we're deficient in and what we can improve rather than celebrating strengths and successes and regaling in success stories and looking, you know, examining best games and recalling best games and best moments. I think that that's such an important practice to, to engage in as well as the positive psychology stuff. What are we grateful for? What are my, what are my values and when am I living these values? Those kind of things. I think, I think these are fantastic tools. These are brilliant mechanisms for us to utilize. And again, especially in sport, professional sport, elite sport, where uh, it is all about the deficit what we're deficient in so i don't know if i've gone off on a tangent there um, no no I, th I think that's really that's really interesting and, and relevant and, and actually relevant and interesting f across the board you know amateur sport school sport and and the like to to start and uh, you know i obviously know a bit about your approach and that, that you like to identify those strengths first and the appreciative inquiry david cooper writer you know getting getting that in first to and, but but what, what's the importance of doing that first before moving on to something else? I think when you do that, the clues and the cues, the triggers, the memories, even utilising imagination. So, you know, imagining dream games, if you like. Mm -hmm. These can act as really effective templates for players to utilize um, to drive the language that might be uh, might help them develop confidence or sustain confidence or build confidence um, that can be utilized for a day-to-day -day narrative that influences how they feel that influences the emotions they're experiencing and I suppose I draw it back to my experiences Let, let's say you know, working in soccer, working in the Premier League, I actually find a lot of these places quite sad places. They're quite joyless at times. And and look, I'm not. I haven't been in every club, but I have. I have um, consulted with players from just about every club, and I know the landscape changes from day to day, um, or season to season, with different personnel 
and again, again, there's going to be a lot of individual differences here, but these are quite joyless. Is that the right word? I, I think joy is scarce, is sparse. Mm. Um, and I think that I, I, I think that when you help a player reflect on not just strengths and successes, but also coming back to that intrinsic motivation, what, I, what do I love about this? When I was a kid, how many conversations do I have with players who say, you know, Dan, I used to love this when I was a kid. This was so much fun. You know, I, just, I used to play all day. I used to play all day, you know, and sensibility suggests, and, you know, medical departments quite rightly are holding players off the pitch because of the intensity, et cetera. But, you know, you do wonder if we lived in a world where players got to choose, and I, I know this is a fantasy thing, but got to choose to, to, to engage in free play and enjoying the game a bit more with their, with their teammates rather than completely having structured training all the time, just as a thought experiment, what would that look like? Would that inject more joy in, into the, into the environment? Yeah. I, I, and I do think it takes, it takes bravery. And again, there might be clubs who are doing this. I'm sure there are. Um, I'm sure there are coaching staff who drive this, drive their environment and, 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 and there's, there's more joy involved and, um, training sessions are at times oriented towards uh, the experience players have of moving and running and cooperating and competing together and, and there's more points made and questions asked around those things because I think that that's important and I'm not saying that's the whole picture I'm not saying that you abolish seriousness because it's a serious business and clubs exist to win at the professional level but it's how do we win and how do we help players engage in experiences that helps them feel a little bit more joy that helps them experience a greater sense of positive emotion on a day-to-day basis and subsequently that helps them actually high perform more consistently under pressure um it's a as Kath Baker, the ex-Olympic rower, said in her book, it's just a more sophisticated relationship with performance and a more sophisticated relationship with winning. And it's a more sophisticated relationship with professionalism, I suppose, yeah. or the professionalization of sport. Um, I just think we need, if there's a continuum between a basic continuum between seriousness and playfulness, the environments I've tended to be in, I think the volume is turned up right the way over to seriousness too often. And that's not to suggest that that shouldn't be a big part of it and shouldn't exist. But I just wonder if there needs to be a greater sense of playfulness. And interestingly, when I first got involved in, let's say, British football, I actually wonder sometimes and, and at, at the lower levels if there's occasionally too much play, playfulness, a bit too much banter and a bit more too much whoa and way and way. And it's like... Well, well, guys, concentrate, focus. It's, it's incredibly complex. And it's a, I'm not suggesting one can find that sweet spot all the time and get, get it right all the time. But I suppose, coming back to your question, I want players to have frameworks 
on and off the pitch that help them experience seriousness, help them experience the kind of seriousness that helps them get, helps them experience their best possible game. Yeah. And at the same time, be able to walk away from a career that they enjoyed because I think too many are walking away from a career that's actually plagued by a lot of negative emotion um, rather than positive emotion. And I, I'm not convinced that just because you play professional sport that you can't enjoy the experience, uh, experience joy, experience a greater array of positive emotion. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. And and sort of looking at it in that way, you know, you, you could look at other professions, something completely different, um, banking, uh, insurance, uh, catering, nursing, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, the, the these principles could could equally apply. I suppose that's why you know, people try and bring analogies from sport to to life. Um, but you, you're talking there about when players leave their you know, come to the end of the career for whatever reason that might be. And obviously there's multiple reasons. Do you, do you help players prepare for that in advance or, or is it usually quite reactionary? I think, I think the ideal situation is that when clubs contract players, that they, that that player walks into an environment that's a psychologically informed environment. And I think a psychologically informed environment is multidimensional psychologically. And by that, I mean, yes, it wants to take into account thoughts, feelings, experiences, and personalities of its participants. And so subsequently help players develop their game as a consequence of knowing them better, know your players. But I also think a psychologically informed environment is caring for the player from the perspective of this will all be over at some point. So we're going to create an environment that starts that conversation with players and helps them to put into place uh, a, a post-career um, pathway but I also think a psychologically informed environment needs to help players enjoy multiple identities. And again, I think at the professional level, it's very scared of doing that because it almost wants its players to go, I'm John, I'm a footballer. I'm Mary, I'm a footballer. I'm Pete, I'm a basketball player in the NF in the NBA, you know, yeah. um, because it wants them obsessed, passionate, yeah. about playing in it you know just focus on that just focus on that right now you don't need anything else and yet when we have that kind of identity foreclosure the evidence suggests that that's going to lead to a greater sense of misery increase the chances of burnout injury all, all those things that's and that's not to suggest again nuance here that a player shouldn't be um, heavily invested in their sport and maybe obsessed for some is the right word. Yeah. Again, individual differences. But I think certainly for clubs at the very elite level, that there needs to be something in place that helps players uh, retain a sense of multiple identity, um, which probably should include the notion that one day this is going to be over 
what are you going to do? Let's have a conversation about that. What skills and competencies can you pick up now? Um, yeah, I, I, I think that needs to be within the narrative, in my opinion, in my opinion. And, you know, there will be others who will say, well, at the kind of level you're talking about, Dan, these people are richly rewarded and it, it's up to them and maybe their family or maybe their agent, because every player has an agent these days to, to, to consider that. And that's not what our remit is. I, I think it varies. Um, but I, I would always urge an organisation to, 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 to help that person consider that that transition if you like or or even not see it as a transition again if we're enjoying multiple identities is it a transition uh or is it just okay i'm not you know i'm still john the footballer but um i'm you know i'm not john the footballer at manchester united i'm john the footballer and i'm enjoying my broadcasting and my writing and this that, and the other you know i think it's quite a complex landscape and i understand why organizations don't necessarily get deep into that but i think you know to, to provide somebody who potentially helps with that i think is useful yeah yeah i mean that you you're kind of alluding there to the the person before player approach, which seems to be coming increasingly popular. And, and, you know, from, from our side of the fence, it makes complete sense to acknowledge the person, to value the person and their multiple selves. They might, you know, their sons, wives, husbands, dads, mums, you know, all, all these, and that's just, you know, a few. Um, so from our side, as, as if you like healthcare professionals, we can say, yeah, look, we know that this is important. But how do the players take it when you when you start talking to them about about this and saying, look, you know, there's other versions of you here? Yeah, and I and I and I think you know several things to say here. I, I think it's interesting you say person before player, and I actually almost think there's there's three P's here. There's a person, there's a player, and there's a performer. You know, I think with the person, it's it's it's, and again, I'm talking about the very elite level here the professional level where the clubs the organizations have resources you know the the person is you know is 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 full to the brim with characteristics and you 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 want to try and help them engage you want to engage them you want them to enjoy their experience at the club and so providing them with the, the facility, the resources to do that is important. I think the player for me in my world is all about learning and growing, learning and growing, um, learning as a, as a footballer or whatever sport they're playing, uh, getting better, improving and, and potentially providing them with a platform to grow as a person. And then the performer is the competitor. How can we help this person be a, a better competitor? So I think, for me in my mind there's almost like three piece there player person player and performer um but to 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 speak to your last thing i think this is the complexity of that environment is that when you're actually in there what you what you what you begin to understand is that not every player wants not every person wants to have that conversation Mm -hmm. not every not every person in that environment wants to engage with you and and so perhaps I'll, I'll take this in a slightly different track, uh, Richmond. And what I'll say is this, is that I think we in psychology, I think need to do a better job of differentiating between performance psychology, 
well-being and welfare and mental health. And they're all linked up. Of course they are. But I almost sometimes wonder if we need to be a bit reductionist about it. And again, mental health, welfare, well-being. Some people argue that they're the same thing and other people might see it slightly differently. Um, I personally would say, look, I think performance psychology needs to be normalized. Uh, I, I, my argument is that if I step into a club, if you want to utilize a sports psychologist, shoving them away in the medical department, doing absolutely nothing, you can do that. And I'm not saying there's no value in that, but I think that normalizing performance psychology, bringing the sports psychologist into including them with your coaching staff, with auxiliary staff, giving them the opportunity to work with players from a performance psychology perspective. I am probably quite, I take quite an extreme view here. I think that needs to be the green light for everybody. I think that needs to be compulsory because I think we need to be all in there. We need to be invested there because there's just too much evidence that when, you know, learning and performing, learning and competing, is psychologically underpinned or psychosocially or biopsychosocially underpinned. Uh, and, you know, you take, you know, Robert Bjork and Elizabeth Bjork and their work on human learning and memory. Well, they're psychologists, you know, psychologists globally play a big part in helping people understand learning in different contexts. Yeah. So, so that's where psychologists can be involved there equally the, the capacity to compete. There's a lot to do with behavior management and motivation and, psychological tools for preparation and psychological techniques in the moment on the on, on the pitch or on the field and so why wouldn't a psychologist be heavily involved there so that all comes under the rubric of performance psychology mm-hmm. and so uh, for me it's uh, you don't want to talk to me about that well I think that's unacceptable I, I think that needs to be compulsory you know, we, we leadership, teamship, relationship. That 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 to me again comes under that performance psychology piece. Yeah. So I think if a player doesn't want to engage as an individual and as a group in that, that to me is not that to me is suboptimal. Yeah. And I say that knowing that just about every club makes it doesn't make it compulsory and makes it optional and whether i'm happy to be a lone voice saying no 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 (laughs) that is wrong i believe that is wrong and suboptimal that's my opinion i i feel i put across strong arguments when i write about this that's my opinion i think the importance then of disseminating between that and welfare and well-being and mental health is that I almost see a traffic light system here where <laughs> the performance psychology is the green light. The amber light is the welfare and well-being. And by amber light, I mean, I think we can all be invested in that. And I think then, in my opinion, more and more we're realizing that there needs to be uh, effective strategies running through the organization that relate to best coaching practice, coaching processes, as well as just providing tools for for the people in the organization to learn how to uh, engage in well-being and how to deal deal with ill-being. We're all going to experience ill-being. We might experience ill-being, you know, a bit every single day, of course. That's part of the human, that's how we, part of the human experience is how we function as human beings. 
uh, and, and so I would almost argue that that could potentially be something that needs to be compulsory as well but I would say it's more amber in as much as it's not it, it, it it's perhaps less open and it might be players coming to you when they want to and sort of we're having that conversation there where you side up to a player and say hey how's how you feeling and what's been going on and that's my thought there. I think the mental health piece is more the red light, which is, you know, the, the, the clinical stuff and, you know, stuff that for me, my competence doesn't reach. And I would have to, I think that's where a clinical psychologist, you know, can be utilized within an organization um, to call upon. Um, and I think that that's the, the red light. That's, that's very much the confidential private piece. Yeah, so uh, it's kind I, of being diagnosed with depression or, or yeah, 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 and 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 I think that that's where I have a slight. I I think what's gone on in the past decade, Richmond, with this the openness and it's we've all got to talk, and I think that's great. I think that's awesome, and who am I to say anything should change from that? I think it's fantastic, and I think there were, would have been some very let's call them old school mindsets from various coaches that have changed now. Um, not least, let's say a manager a few months ago who uh, publicly chastised his goalkeeper um, on national TV um, uh, and, and then was essentially forced to retract it because, you know, by his own admission, uh, admitted it was the wrong thing to do from a, a well-being perspective uh, and I think he was quite authentic and genuine about that he realized he'd got it wrong so I, I, I think that pressure now is on the old school mindsets of hey come on you know we need to, we need to dig deeper here however what I would add as a caveat where it's more nuanced is I also would respectfully say I think there are people who are sort of saying oh, I suffer from depression when perhaps what they actually experienced was low mood. Mm. And I, I, I'm concerned that we might medicalize something that doesn't need to be medicalized, that actually they're just experiencing some low level uh, depressive episodes or low mood mm. uh, or ill being. And I, and I say this, I'm, I'm, I'm not of, you know, there are people who are far more uh, articulate on this and know the research much better than me but I, I just think that we need to we're now getting into the realms of we need to become more intelligent with our communication and so my solution solution if you like is hey let's differentiate between these three things people who experience about a low mood aren't necessarily you know experiencing serious depression yeah they're just experiencing some low mood and that's not nice and they need tools and techniques to be able to deal with that but by and large as human beings we all have that and that's where that's a really useful thing i was talking to dr michael gervais the eminent sports psych from the states and he said dan i think in the next decade you know this area is going to continue to grow because you know and, and companies now are hiring other companies to 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 draw upon their expertise and, and give their uh, employees well-being opportunities every single day so yeah. that landscape is changing but i'm still getting contacted and saying well 
we're covering that, but what about the performance psychology piece? What about how do we get the most from our performance moments? You know, in the corporate environment, when I step into a presentation or deal with a difficult conversation or go into a meeting, how do I perform brilliant there? And that's complex and that's dynamic as well. So I think my very long-winded answer is three areas, performance psychology, which has to, has to, has to be, a part of what we do and it can't just be i'm a coach i do psychology it's got to be well let me let help let me help you upskill in this mm. because there's so many things that i can help you with here i think that's vital i think the welfare and the well-being piece and then the mental health piece does that does that make sense to you it, yeah it really does actually and uh, i mean going back to what you first said about it being being part of not not just a kind of an optional thing or a bit on the side you know, these are things that really need to be integrated because, you know, from, from performance will come elements of wellness anyway. From, from performance, you know, knowing that and having your own way of measuring, yeah, I performed today. Okay, we didn't get the result we wanted, but I performed the best I could considering the circumstances. And I can see that is going to be very different, you know, a very different experience for that player than, than thinking something else. So I totally agree. Integrate these things into it. Um, and, and yeah, you know, the working with someone who is genuinely, and I, again, I totally agree. Lots of people think or are told they're depressed. They're not, they've got low mood, depressive episodes, and usually you can understand why. And if you're in those shoes, you'd feel pretty lousy as well. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a really nice way of, of putting it very understandable and very practical. Well, I think, I think just briefly coming back at you there yeah for me you're 100 spot on and integration integrated is a word i often use and neglected to use there and i think it's the word and i, I because i think it's a when, when we think about performance and our relationship with performance it's a keen mix between coaching practice coaching environment and player mentality and player philosophy, essentially. And again, I, I'm going to draw on several things here. I think from an environment perspective, again, I urge uh, groups of coaches within their organization, within their team to engage in psychologically informed environments, to potentially engage in psychological safety. Uh, and, and certainly, certainly to engage in a motivational climate that optimizes the experience of the player and, and helps that player be at least as much task oriented as ego oriented, at least as much into mastery as, as, as they are being as much self-referenced as they are other referenced, which if anybody looks up motivational climate, they, you know, they're going to discover these kind of terms uh, and I don't want to wash over them because they're very important. But, you know, I, I, my in the 15 years I've functioned as a sports psychologist, by and large, I've experienced at the professional level um, a motivational climate that's very ego oriented. It's all about the win. It's all about high performance. It's all about beating others. And that's understandable because, again, I come back to that comment of what these clubs exist to win. In many respects but they're they're not necessarily treating that statement with much sophistication um the research literature and i think the experiential evidence suggests that when we create an environment 
that helps players being more immersed, be more self-referenced, focused on themselves, focused on themselves as individuals and their team, focused on the tasks that they've got to accomplish every single day, that they've got to accomplish in games, uh, rather than got to win, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to perform, got to perform, then it's a healthier and safer. You're never going to get 100% healthy and 100% safe, but it's a healthier and safer environments for players to experience and then they might experience those positive emotions that we spoke about earlier but motivational climate also bears relationship with achievement goal theory and the achievement goal theory is more on the individual level which is well what's the player trying to accomplish here when they go into game day what are they trying to accomplish on a week-to-week basis and again i find most of my work is actually helping players turn more towards the task the mastery, the process, as cliche as that sounds, away from ego, away from, you know, ego being other referenced, got to win, got to win, got to perform, got to beat others. And using that, you know, extreme language around got to win, got to perform. And and it's hard. It's hard, Richmond, because I get, you you know, I, uh, you know, coaches will come back or managers will come back, but we have got to win. You know, otherwise we lose our jobs. Yeah. But that, but that's, and we have got a high performance. Players have to know that, but kind of players do know that. You know, and so so it's like if you're if you're standing in a room, and I, I, you know, you see it on these documentaries on Prime, and with the greatest respect, you, you listen to some of the communication, and you think, well, I get why you're communicating that way, but you're reflecting back to the players in many respects the obvious and what we know from the research literature and what we know experientially is you're very probably not with every single player but you're very probably turning up the volume of anxiety here rather than turning down the volume of anxiety and turning up the volume of focus you know if we if we've got volumes on the wall you know i want volume turn up on focus and that's very much the tasks the things that we can control the specifics approach behaviors the positives what do we want I think those two words, specific, controllable, and positive, are very important. You know, specificity, controllables, and um, approach behavior. So what we want, the positives, not what we don't want. It's vital. We can't lose this guy. I've been in a changing room where somebody's coach has been screaming, we cannot lose today. We cannot lose. And again, it feels like the right things to say because we want to amp up these players. We, you know, we want to get them into their optimal level of arousal is that horrible term we'd use, but well, that's so different for different players. That's so different for different players, you know, and we, 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 we get players in this watching a documentary recently of a fairly high profile team with a, fairly high profile manager at the time and seeing them in this big circle in the change room is come on guys and lots of f's and Mm. effing and blinding and okay you can do that and i get why you're doing that but can we explore different approaches here are are we really hitting this at the individual level are we really even hitting this at the unit level you know of can we get the defenders together here talking you know what what does the individual need does the individual need that volume of noise or does the individual and again i'm not suggesting it is 100 percent wrong i'm just saying what does the sophisticated approach look like here Uh, and i think that that is still something that we in psychology need to keep having conversations about with coaches keep negotiating keep co-creating keep having the hard conversation about because it's not always obvious 
Um, and I think that that's, I'm talking like this because I, I don't want to suggest that what, what, what I'm seeing there is that's wrong. Because it's ridiculous to say it's wrong. It's just we need to keep thinking about what's optimal. And what's optimal might change week to week. Yeah. And it might the last thing to say here is I, I remember I was consulting at a club in the championship and I was going to all the games. <laughs> and we were going through a bit of a rough period. And I went into the change room at half time. We'd been 2 0 up. And suddenly it was 2 all. And you could just feel the tension going through the team. And and afterwards I said to the manager, you know what, I wish I'd said to you, and perhaps I didn't quite have the relationship to be able to say this to him. I said, I wish, you know, I said, I've got to be honest with you. If we could get in a time machine, I'd love to be in a position to be able to say to you, this is what I'm thinking here. And I know that that's a stretch to be able to give a sports psychologist the capacity to, you know, give their opinion because usually that's a coaching staff thing, but it can be useful mm -hmm. because I think, because those players sat down and the energy collapsed. Yeah. And I wanted to say to the coach, you know, keep those players standing, ask mm -hmm. them to deliberately stand, get them into small groups, get them brainstorming a few ideas or whatever it looks like, just mm -hmm. do something different because it was obvious from there we were going to lose. Yeah. You know, the intensity, had, the confidence had dropped. It was a challenging period anyway. So anyway, I'm waffling now, but it, 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 it just needs to be... It just needs to be a bit more nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. So you, look, it sounds like you, you know, you've got such a passion for it and, and for this area to grow um, to, as you said, not to stop doing things, but just to build on and build on what works, to be open to new ideas, to try things, to experiment. And, and certainly uh, the nub of that seems to be the, you know, uh, an open relationship between the coach and the psychologist where they can freely communicate to each other uh, at all times with the, the interests of the club, if you like, uh, or the player at the heart of it. I think it's, <coughs> excuse me, I think it's, it's head scratchy to me that f from my knowledge, which would be limited on this, my understanding is that in the history of the Premier League, you could you could look at Bill Beswick being on Steve McLaren's coaching staff when they were at Middlesbrough. You could look at Bruno Di Michele being on Carlo Ancelotti, his coaching staff at Chelsea. And Bruno Di Michele... Uh, is he a sports scientist? Is he a sports psyche? He had a qualifications and a background in sports psychology and obviously Bill's Bill and he does his applied sports psychology stuff. And my understanding is those are the only two instances in the 30 years of Premier League history where you've got a sports psych, if that's mm -hmm. the right term, on staff, on the coaching staff, who's there at, uh, embedded integrated into that coaching staff and that is a bit head scratchy to me because biopsychosocial is constantly happening every single second of every single day it's and as a consequence it's always happening in every activity in every session it's head scratchy to me that 
you know that then sports psych then isn't invited into the coach meetings the the coach reflections isn't part of the brainstorming because it's just so important mm. why why wouldn't it why wouldn't it be a big yeah. part of this it, it, sometimes i do sort of wonder and i don't know again I, i've got to look at my own cognitive biases here right? my own heuristic biases yeah. but why wouldn't a sports a good sports psych be the number one name on the list for any manager it's like, why wouldn't you want that person next to you as long as that person has a diverse expertise and experience in learning and competing and engagement motivation and teamship and leadership and relationship and behavior change and environment why wouldn't you want that person next to you why it, it just i i i find that extraordinary now that's not to say that coaches don't have these experiences but what you know if you're especially at the very highest level where really it could only happen because the resources aren't there at the lower level but why wouldn't Solskjaer um, I, I, and Guardiola has his mentor, I think, who's a former water polo player, so maybe that's covered. But why wouldn't these coaches, managers have this person embedded? I, I, I don't get that. And I, yeah, so anyway, that, but maybe, maybe that's my own cognitive bias, right? Okay, maybe, maybe I'm so. completely wrong. No, I think that it's a, it's a valid question. And, and I think there's other questions like that for, for other people who could also contribute enormously to of course. the things that the club faces. Um, you know, maybe it's fear, maybe it's habit, maybe it just hasn't occurred to them. You know, maybe there's a worry that, that they're going to be told their coaching method doesn't really work very well. And they, you know, maybe they, you know, they don't, they don't fancy it. So a whole, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of reasons, but it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And, and, and you're hundred percent right. But then I'd say, well, we've got to be better than that. You know, we've got to be better than that. You know, it, it, it is hard. I, I, and I say that it's hard to, I find it hard to be critiqued and I get that. I get that. That's, that's part of the negotiation, isn't it? That, and that's part of leadership. You know, you've got somebody there and that person's going to express an opinion and um, it, leadership is having the capacity to lift, listen to people's opinions and listen to alternative viewpoints um, and, and being able to uh, uh, sort out the, you know, the wheat from the chaff and sort out what, you know, how you'd like to lead and, and the approach you'd like to take, you know, as a sports psychologist, I might, I might extol the virtues of autonomy, supportive coaches, coaching, and the head coach or manager might say, well, I hear you, Dan, but, you know, I, I think directive coaching is really important and, and structure and systems in place. And me telling players what to do is really important for me right now in this context. And that's fine. That's no problem at all. Um, but you're right. You're, you know, you're, you're quite, there's, there's reasons why it doesn't happen. Maybe it's sports psychology's fault. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly concerned with, I, I, I think a lot of coaches in all sports don't see sports psychology as a discipline to improve performance necessarily. I think they just see it as mental health and welfare and well-being. Um, yeah. And I think that's interesting. I, I think that's wrong. Um, and that's not to say that sports psychology doesn't massively contribute to welfare, well-being and mental health. Um, and, and if anything, within sports psychology, there's a push actually 
more towards welfare, well-being and mental health and away from mental skills. I mean, that's, I think, quite a paradox is I think on the one hand, coaches and managers don't necessarily see it as something that improves performance or does so kind of inadvertently. Yet at the same time, there's a lot of sports, especially at the English Institute of Sport, and they're doing a great job uh, with it. They're, they're, they're talking about, no, come on, we've got to get away from mental skills and we've got to be shaping environments and we've got to be shaping welfare, well-being. This is performance and well-being here. And we've got to drive that. For me, it's just everything. It's everything thrown into the mix. My job, I'm a technician as well as a practitioner behind the scenes. You know, I, I, I think sports sites, if they want to, can wear wear boots and can get on the pitch. I don't, I don't see a problem with that, but yeah. I understand that we've got some barriers to break down before that happens. We have, we have. And I think it's these conversations and people listening to you that, that will hopefully help that um that forward movement um which you know undoubtedly you're you're fueling which is which is great um where where can people um read your stuff and and see what you're up to i haven't switched everybody off by now um (laughs) here are (coughs) here are the here are the platforms so my website is danabrahams.com where you can find books and online academy and things like that and how i work my consultancy etc and a a blog as well um my twitter i have three twitter pages but my my main one is dan abrahams at dan abrahams 77 which i suppose is more football than anything else but everything all the messages uh, apply to all sports on there i do have a golf one abrahams golf and um uh, at sports psych show for for my podcast which leads me neatly onto the podcast, which is the Sports Psych Show. You just have to Google the Sports Psych Show, and I have great people on there like yourself, Richmond. Yeah. So, uh, so it's 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 not because I'm a great host, but more because I have a great guests that I think it's a really good podcast, and I'm proud to say it's one of the more listened to sports psychology podcasts out there. Um, and Instagram is at Abraham at Dan Abraham's Sport. Facebook is at Dan Abraham Soccer. And on Facebook and LinkedIn, I actually post. Uh, I, I I publish a, a short post every single day on LinkedIn and Facebook. You can find me Dan Abraham's on LinkedIn and at Dan Abraham's Soccer for for Facebook. And I think I think that's it. Yeah, wow. I think that's everything. I, I'm impressed that you remember all of those things. I've, I've probably said it enough times but um yeah yeah so no thank you thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on and and distribute my my, my rambles widely yeah no it's great no I, I i knew you'd be an excellent guest and uh, and share your thoughts so um no that's great thanks for your time i i suspect there there well i'd love there to be rather uh, a part two um at some point um there's there's lots that we could uh we could learn and, and i think i think there's more questions than answers isn't there and i think that that's i certainly think there's some answers in there and there's things that i'm very passionate and determined that they hold some kind of truth although again i think there are there are a wealth of individual differences and contextual nuances but um i think there's there's a lot of questions out there to 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 to, to, to discuss so let's do that part two mate perfect Perfect. We have a good day and uh, take care of yourself. Thank you. Cheers.